0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This and my following three lectures will focus on the religious, that is the Catholic Christian uh, nature of the independent city republics known as the communes during their period of flourishing, that is from the late 1100s to the early 1300s. After 1300, some Italian cities, most famously Florence and Venice, preserved Republican externals, but they were increasingly dominated by powerful noble families, like the Medici, or by the restricted economic oligarchies, uh, becoming republics only in name. But most institutionally became Signoriae, that is small despotic states, controlled by powerful noble families. This change transformed their culture and reduced their religious element of that culture uh, to what amounts to political window dressing. I hope that all of you have finished reading the selections from uh, J.K. Hyde's little classic, uh, Society and Politics in Medieval Italy, uh, 1000 to 1350. And I suspect, if you've been reading it, you've noticed that he has virtually nothing to say about the religious life of the cities he is studying. So I will quote him. The Italian communes were essentially secular contrivances whose particularism flourished in spite of universal religion and the claims of a universal empire. Nonsense. Nonsense. The same view is true of another more recent classic that I did not assign, Philip Jones' The Italian City-States, which dedicates four, yes, I said four, pages out of 710 to the religious life of the cities he is studying. These are There are Italian nationalist and ideological reasons for this scholarly myopia, but they are not of interest to us this week. I will simply say that I have spent much of my long academic career attacking this approach to high medieval Italy, and these lectures represent the fruits of that research. Nevertheless, if you have not read Hyde yet, you need to complete the selection by tomorrow morning. Uh, I will, since I presume his bald political history in my lectures, and I'm not going to repeat it. I'm going to start with the laity. Uh, because the religious life of the Italians' Civitatis Dei was their creation as much or even more than their fellow priests and other ecclesiastics. The laity of the communes created a spiritual geography alongside the structures of the parish and the diocese. What has been called medieval penance culture inspired this creation, although its roots are much older. During the Gregorian reform some lay people in northern Italy were making seeking a more intense Christian life by 1200 these lay individuals were calling themselves conversi converts or penitenti penitents the word converso originally described a layman who had attached himself to a monastic order and made a conversion of life or ablation of himself That is to say, he'd become a member of the monastic family and served the monks as a lay brother. Strictly speaking, a penitent was someone on whom the church had imposed a public penance for some serious sin, a practice that continued, as I've shown in my work, into the 14th century. It didn't end in antiquity. More loosely, this was a lay person who had more or less spontaneously taken up a life of asceticism. Throughout the 1100s, single and married people took up a variety of ascetical practices, sometimes on their own, but often under the spiritual direction of a priest at a church or monastery. Documents of the early communal period record examples of conversi who privately vowed conversion of life before their local parish priest, but continued to live in their homes. By the early 1200s, the distinction between conversi and penitents had become blurred. And the words were used increasingly as I intend to use them, that is, as simonyms. Originally, married people could undertake penance only by separating, since the state of penance demanded celibacy. In the communal period, married conversi, however, rose to over 50% of the self-oblations. And I'll say more about what their, uh, their, their attitude towards marital rights is later. At Lucca, in the late 1100s, for example, uh, 53% of conversi were married couples. 20% were single women, over half of whom were widows, and the remaining 27% were single men. This is an important transformation and gave a great boost to the movement of the penitenti. Remember, however, that not all conversi were married, nor did all married conversi avail themselves of their rights of marriage. Private vows of chastity were typical for couples past childbearing age, and were not uncommon among unmarried conversi and married conversi. Over time, more and more, the practice of ch- chastity became normative for all penitents, which it was, the, which was the case by the early 1200s, the period I'm most interested in. Asceticism was the foundation of conversi life. The biographer of the late penitent Saint Ranieri of Pisa tells us that a demon once appeared to the holy man and explained that even devils could have been saved had they possessed bodies for doing penance. But as they have only a spiritual nature and no bodies to mortify, they're stuck forever in hell. For a lay person to undergo conversion, to be a converso, meant the practice of asceticism, doing penance. In the later 1100s and early 1200s, conversion to asceticism was an individual act, and the organization was very, very informal. In 1204, chroniclers tell us that a Fra Alberto of Mantua preached for six weeks in Bologna, and many persons converted. So in our period, laity performed certain functions that we modern Catholics would consider exclusively clerical. Francis of Assisi's almost contemporary conversion, when viewed against the background of these earlier conversions, looks remarkably traditional. The saint, on renouncing his inheritance, took up a life of penance under the guidance and jurisdiction of Bishop Guido of Assisi. This position granted Francis a privilegium fori at law, that is, it made him an ecclesiastical person, subject only to church courts. Simplicity was essential to the life of penance. This did not imply, as it would for Francis later, absolute poverty. Although the conversi practiced asceticism and took vows, including celibacy, privately before a local priest, they remained lay people and continued to live at home, earn a living, and even conduct business affairs. Conversi needed sufficient resources to live on their own they continued to own personal property. When Umiliana de Cerchi became a conversa, she distributed food and clothing, including her bed linen to the poor, and arranged to have mass set daily for her sins, but she retained sufficient funds to live on. When the 10-year-old Bona of Pisa asked to become a devota, as female Pisan penitents called themselves, the pious women rejected her because she was young, that is to say, might decide to get married, and did not have, and she did not have the money to buy proper penitence garb, much less support herself independently. At home, Conversi could enjoy the benefits of other family members. Family domestics waited on Umiliana de Cherki during her final illness, and she continued to treat them as her own servants. One serving girl found Umiliana's constant demands for water, so trying that she eventually hit the holy holy woman on the head with the pitcher. Had the penitents remained individual pious individuals, they would have affected the piety, perhaps, of the communes, uh, but they would not have affected its self-understanding and, most importantly, its political structures. Very early... Penitenti began to club together in voluntary associations. Religious associations of the devout laity with similar forms to those of the communal period already existed in the late Carolingian period, usually under some kind of clerical control. At San Cassiano di Imola, about 1160, however, lay people founded a rural confraternity that met annually on the feast of their patron, St. James. Their ministers collected donations and went in procession to make candle offerings, attend a solemn mass in honor of their patron, and distribute alms to the poor. The group provided support for poorer members should they become sick or die. This association is virtually identical in activities and organization to the later documented communities of lay people in the context of the communes. The group's organization is strikingly similar, to the neighborhood associations, societat, that dominated the political life of 13th century communes. But this group had no political, penitential aspects or civil functions. I will discuss the communal neighborhood societies later in the next lecture. For now, the focus is on the individuals involved and their free associations. Although 11th century conversi were freelancers, they sought sponsorship from local ecclesiastical authorities. The turn of the 13th century was a fertile time for such affiliations. By 1188, a group of lay penitents at San Desiderio received a church of their own from the cathedral chapter of canons of Vicenza. This served as their cultic and administrative center. Possession of a church implied the exercise of some jurisdiction, something laypeople did not possess. So the chapter itself took responsibility for the group, but the canons left the day-to-day religious affairs to the lay. The conversi had the right to find a priest-chaplain for themselves and to present him to the chapter. The group symbolized its subjection to the chapter by an annual tax, nomine census prosinio obedientiae, of 20 shillings. The offering the society placed on the altar of the Virgin in the cathedral. At San Desiderio, conversi- the San Desiderio conversi are by no means unique. Uh, they ha- are but one of the many associations of conversi that appeared in the late 1100s and early 1200s with ecclesiastical approval. By the early 1200s, the transition from penitence with pi- private vows to rem- rudimentary private associations and finally to canonically erected religious institutes was well advanced. The so-called propositum of the Lombard penitents of 1215, the earliest recoverable statutes for a group of Italian urban penitents, reflects the fertile legislative climate among lay religious groups of the early 13th century. Although the original text is lost, its form and contents are not hard to reconstruct from later legislation. The penitents enlisted an anonymous North Italian canonist to draft the document, probably in the wake of preaching by St. Francis of Assisi in North Italy in 1215. The use of the money of Ravenna in the document suggests a Romagnol origin, perhaps faenza. The propositum stipulated a monthly convocation in the association's patronal church for preaching and for mass. It organized aid for poor and sick members and required that all make a will, lest they die in testing. The members were to work for peace among themselves, and this legislation, reflecting that of pious associations of the previous century, mostly was already boilerplate. Identical provisions for masses and votive lamps are found in the statutes of secular associations, even financial and business organizations, and these are found elsewhere. The penitent brothers bound themselves to the recitation of the divine office if they were literate and had the books to do so, literate here meaning able to read Latin. Otherwise, if illiterate and when traveling, each said seven paternosters, our fathers, and seven gloria patris, glory to the fathers, for each hour. For prime and compline, they added a credo and the psalm miserere, the penitential psalm, if they had them memorized to their pateres and glorias. All recited the Potter's Grace before meals and after meals. In Lent, I should say, in St. Martin's Lent, from November 11 to Christmas, all attended matins daily at the local church. I should mention something I don't have in my notes right here, it'll come up later, that at this time, parish priests were required, there was no said Mass, everything was sung, and they were required not only to sing daily Mass, but also sing the entire office which would have taken them about three and a half hours. Uh, these minist- uh, the statutes made provision for governance as well. Leadership was vested in two brothers who served as ministers. These ministers, the treasurer and the messenger of the society, solicited from the brothers annual nominations for the officers of the coming year. As their last act of governance, uh, they appointed the new leaders from the list of nominees. The officials examined candidates for membership, dispensed them from the rule when necessary, and served as the group's link to the local bishop. A new member needed permission of his wife to join because it involved giving up sex. When a member died, the brothers engaged a priest to sing a requiem mass within the week of the death. The literate members recited 50 psalms and the illiterate 50 pateres. Each year priest affiliates said three masses, the illiterate said the whole the literate said the whole psalter, and all others said a hundred paters for the groups departed like Dominicans, it's best to be dead as a penitenti. Uh, it's great to be live as a Jesuit, be sick as a Franciscan, but be dead as a Dominican. We have the most suffragists for our dead. Uh, <clears throat> Later urban societies, be these religious confraternities or communal or business corporations, perpetuated virtually exactly the same forms which I have described for this holy religious society. In practice, however, the move from ad hoc association to developed organization came much more slowly. The lay penitence way of life, begun in the 1100s and systematized by the 1210s, received canonical form on the 20th of May, 1221, when Pope Gregory IX approved the memoriale of the brothers and sisters of penance living in their own houses, which closely tracks the propositum of 1215. Memoriale here means a record of an intended way of life. The Pope's recognition gave the penitents formal ecclesiastical status as a group, something they corporately lacked in the earlier period. Popes and bishops soon granted them a wide range of ecclesiastical privileges. Hardly a single line of, of, uh, the, of the memoriale does not, uh, find, does not find a model in an earlier rule or penitential canon. As the uh, document's full title indicates, the individuals living under it dwelt at home in their houses. They were seculars, living their own, on their own, not regulars closed in a monastery and sharing their goods in common. The lack of a relig, originality and the simplicity of this document, like later confraternity and communal statutes, led the notary Boncompagno Assigni to doubt whether such legislation deserved the name of statuta, statutes, at all. Papal approval made this moraleale the sole normative rule for all conversi and penitents, in Italy at least, until the 1290s. We should not overemphasize this sort of a hierarchical approbation. These were lay initiatives, and the ecclesiastical approbations were useful for dealing with local clerics, but not necessary to the form of life. Such groups had long existed without it. Local groups of penitents adopted this rule to their needs through special legislation and affiliated with other groups to form larger groupings or provinces. Communal, that is city authorities, recognized the religious status of individual unaffiliated conversi, taking a role we might consider something belonging to the bishops and clergy rather than the so-called secular government. A Bolognese statute of 1288 provided for conversi who claimed canonical status without entering a religious house. The city required that they have their vows notarized within 15 days of profession and place the document on record at the city office. By the way, you, you could do this with your local notary, which is their word for a, for a lawyer. You didn't have to go to church or do anything. Just sign the document and get them to stamp it. This practice stopped imposters from defrauding the city through dissimulation. The commune of Viela began auditing the books of male and female conversi groups in 1248 to prevent similar frauds. The Bolognese wanted to ensure that no one claimed the rights of a penitent without the responsibilities, but they did not require membership in an ecclesiastically approved organization for penitent status, merely a notarized uh, Profession of the vows. Some married conversi continued to live together on their own as a couple. In the mid 1200s, Bishop Guercio of Lucca ordered married couples who wished to enter the penitential state for the first time to make a pledge of chastity and execute a legal instrument to that effect. And if they were to live together, that meant living as brother and sister. The parish priest would make this act public by announcing the names of those so vowed four year, day times a year so everyone in the parish knew who held this status. And it would be for, as it would be for the third orders of the later 13th and 14th or 14th century, and in fact would be the status of members of the Third Orders until the 19th century. Uh, It's only in the 19th century that members of the Franciscan and Dominican Third Orders were allowed to be married people exercising their marital rights before that celibacy was required. To churchmen, vows of celibacy made the penitent. To the city, it was forfeiting of private property and dependence on an ecclesiastical living, but that would make you a religious. Uh, Parma issued the earliest extant communal legislation on the privileges and obligations of penitents in 1233 at the request of the Franciscan Fra Gerardo of Modena. The city itself pledged generally to observe penitent privileges without specifying any in particular. Legislation of 1248 shows that one privilege intended was exemption from military service for the males. This was not granted to Penitents who remained householders, lived with their wives, and reared children. Married penitents were on the way out. Bologna considered someone a true penitent or conversus only if that individual was a servant of a city church, part of its familia or family, and wore a religious habit and lived off the proceeds of the altar rather than from his own property. The city fathers of Parma... Seemed to favor by their restriction of privileges, withdrawal from secular affairs is typical, if not obligatory, for conversi at least in that city. The habit made the penitent. Nothing obliged conversi to live together or even join a society or a confraternity. There was little standardization in habit appearance. Umiliana dei Cerchi simply wore a black robe with a white veil, and so she appeared to one of her followers in a vision after her death. When Margarita of Cortona decided to embrace the life of a penitent, she made herself a shift of white and gray plaid, quadretto tacolino, and placed over it a black mantle. She appears wearing this odd homemade habit on an early 14th century altarpiece in Verona. Pretty nifty, isn't it? Uh, She was very much the do-it-yourself conversa, in spite of later Franciscan attempts to claim her as one of their own great penitents. Franciscans actually even painted a Franciscan habit over her own in this image. Uh, It was only cleaned off about 25 years ago. Goodbye, Franciscans. (laughs) Hello, Margaret. The Sienese comb maker, Pietro Pettinayo, whose last name means comb maker, took up the habit of a penitent after the death of his wife, or perhaps a little before. The act made him a penitent. The Sienese weren't even asking for vows. By the late 1200s, mendicant directors were pressuring penitents to adopt the colors of their particular orders. The memoriale simply specified that the cloth for penitents cost no more than six shillings Uh, Ravenna per yard. It vetoed fancy dress with slashes and required that brothers' gowns be closed. For women, a bit of vanity was permitted. Their cloth might cost 12 shillings of Ravenna a yard, and they could carry a leather purse on a plain strap. But fripperies like embroidered belts, waistbands, and tooled tooled straps were out as were elaborate dress pleats. No penitents could wear furs. Rather, they were to be content with lambs wool. Penitents were to dress plainly in a way that reflected their state. Nothing here suggests a standardized penitent habit, certainly not the colors of any of the mendicant orders, black for the Dominicans, gray for the Franciscans, white for the Carmelites. Legal privileges followed on wearing the habit. City fathers knew this. The Florentines promulgated statutes forbidding any but true pinzockeri, the local name for penitents, from wearing the conversi habit. Church councils also ordered penitents and clerics to wear distinctive garb. On 24 July, 1286, Bishop Giacomo Cavalcanti of Città di Castello excommunicated anyone who wore the penitents habit without making vows. Notice we're starting to institutionalize things. Uh, Bishop Giacomo's emphasis on vows indicates a somewhat clericalized view of penitent life. The laity had broader views on what it took to enter the state of penance. Penitent's earliest entrance ceremony was nothing more than the execution, as I have said, of a legal instrument, accepting the rule of the society and the imposition of the habit. Only after the 1260s do we find penitent profession rituals, including spoken vows, and when they appear they're patterned on the rites of the religious orders, in particular Dominicans and Franciscans. Arezzo, The penitents vowed to accept the rule, replied to questions as to their acceptance of the society's purpose by saying amen, and then kissed the statute book of the society. Also, like ancient public penitents once professed, a conversa uh, could leave the life of lay penitents only to enter a canonical religious order. At least that was the theory. Penitents were called to a higher standard of lay life, not cloistered monasticism. The penitent habit represented no separation from the daily work of earning a living, but rather the self-discipline by which individuals sought to overcome sins and vices. The rules of the penitents and their offshoots proscribed blasphemy, dicing, tavern haunting, and womanizing. Penitents followed, in their own lay style, the counsels of Christ, something previously understood as the sole preserve of vowed religious. They forswear taking oaths, bearing arms, going to court, and so on. Statutes discipline public sins of members, such as lack of peace and concord, usury, gambling, tavern haunting, uh, frequenting dishonest or bad places and persons, and blasphemy. But legislation on sexual sins and adultery is rare. Probably, I am speculating, because it was not necessary. One of the tricks with medieval laws is if you find a law against something, you can count on it having happened. If not, perhaps not. Medieval spirituality closely connected the state of penance with fasting, and so did the penitents. But they did not carry this to excess. Conversely observed the traditional fasts of the church, including those of Wednesdays and Saturdays, and that of St. Martin's Lent, 11 November to Christmas, which had fallen out of regular public use. To these, traditional fasts, legis, uh, penitent legislation, and in fasting on the vigils of saints and feasts, particular to them or their city. And they were to avoid convivia, parties, soires. <laughs> As commentators on the memoriale explained, the word means meant meals where entertainers and singers. Chocolatores, velcantores, were present. Uh, what would that be, juniors and singers? Uh, the commentary for bad penitents to put on convivia, even as fundraising events for poor relief, ad pauperum. Apparently, someone had discovered a loophole in the rule against parties. Can't stop those penitents from partying. <laughs> but money saved by fasting helped the poor and could be laid up for famine relief. Communities of conversi and penitenti cared for the material as well as spiritual needs of their members. The memoriale provided that when any member heard that another member had fallen sick, he should tell the ministers so they can provide for a weekly sick call visit. Uh, And if if the sick member be poor, supply the needs from the common fund. Should the sick member die, all were to attend the funeral. Charity extended beyond sick members, at least in ritual ways. Not uncommonly, the uh, penitents fed a symbolic 12 poor men before their Palm Sunday banquet. The members ate later and separately from the poor, however, indicating the special community they shared among themselves. The gesture did not imply that the penitents were an economically privileged group, practicing noblesse oblige. If they observed the spirit of their rule, the penitents followed a life, if not a poverty, of poverty, of a certain simplicity. Their behavior was to be humble enough so that they would be suitable recipients of alms themselves. Abuse through luxurious living seems to have happened only in individual cases, the result of the brothers' independence and the freelance quality of their life. Bologna exiled under a ban of 10 pounds Bolognese any bogus penitent who falsely solicited alms in the morning and spent the rest of the day blaspheming in the tavern. More typically, groups of simple living penitents organized assistance for the indigent and served the sick. This identification of penitents with charitable service became marked in the period 1220 to 1250. Cities consequently increased their financial support for penitent groups doing this kind of work. Every group of penitents had a monthly solemn mass and sermon at a particular church, from whose title they adopted their safely patron. Into the early 1200s, the church was usually the chapel of the neighborhood where they lived. The Mass was the pivot and focus of the community's devotional life, and attendance was mandatory. The most common day for the Societat Mass was the first Sunday of the month, a practice that may go back to ancient Roman and Jewish observance of the new moon. Individual groups added other particular devotions to the Mass. The flagellants of Pisa met in the Dominican church of Santa Catarina on the fourth Sunday of the month. After hearing the monthly mass and sermon, the brothers went in possession two by two to the patronal altars and offered candles. They celebrated the patron's feast with a solemn mass and candle offering also at his altar on those days. Like other confraternities, they maintained a perpetual lamp before their patron saint's image. Religious confraternities and the secular associations of their age that borrowed their statute forms sealed their comradeship by table fellowship parties. Dinner followed the uh, monthly mass at the common time of the Italian main meal, that is noon. The ministers of society organized the mass, meeting, and dinner. The treasurers paid the expenses from a collection taken up at the mass. The memoriale set each brother's contribution at one pence. The treasurer set aside any remainder to assist poor members and provide them with suitable funerals. Any further surplus became poor homes. At Sant'Alario, near Florence, the peasants of one such community met in the local church and then dined under the direction of their rectors, who had responsibility for provisions and calculated the expenses. So this was not only a city phenomenon. Local statutes usually include elaborate provisions governing the distribution of food and drink and the sharing of expenses. The memoriale provided that a pious man, vir religiosus, preach in conjunction with the monthly mass and dinner. The priest engaged for mass could have preached, but until the late 1200s, the preacher was commonly a gifted member of the society, a late person. He spoke at the meeting that followed the mass. We know that one lay penitent held the official position of vir religiosus of his Florentine confraternity in the 1220s. He preached after mass, but before dinner. Lay preaching focused, it seems, on practical issues, the group's way of life, and exhortation to works of charity and devotion. Albertano of Brescia, the famous lay theologian, served in the same function, even if he never held the formal title of vir religiosus. Alberto delivered his first Brescian sermon to the lawyers' confraternity. It was structured the same way as the ones I've been describing with patron saints, altars, and masses. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the lawyers' confraternity that met in the Franciscan church of San Giorgio at Brescia. He preached on the association's rule, the business of a meeting, and corporate devotional activities like purchasing oil for the votive lamps. He alluded to the common meal that would follow. Such preaching required little theological sophistication, although uh, Albertano, for one, had no lack of that. Lay preaching declined as the penitents came under supervision of the mendicant orders, but only at the end of the 13th century. Penitents adapted their individual daily prayers to the liturgical office of the church. After rising early, Umiliano de Ciacchi went to hear matins, uh, in fact, in the 13th century, I observed there's a growing fad of lay people attending matins, which would have started about 3:30 in the morning, and them having to pound on the church doors to get the priest to open them up to let them in. Uh, <clears throat> on, on fast day, uh, and she prayed, and then afterwards she returned to her cell, a room in the family palazzo. The family was wealthy, and prayed by herself till dawn. On fast days, she extended her prayers until noon. But otherwise, she took a light meal at sunup and went to serve the indigent, whether at the local hospital or in their houses. In the evening, she returned home for prayer and sleep. A good penitent, she was never idle. Many groups encouraged daily mass, but the more common devotion, as with Humiliana, was the divine office of matins at a local church, which I remind you was still sung even by parish priests. Those who could not sound out the Latin text said pot instead. Italians much preferred the recitation of potter's to reading a little office from a book. The so-called books of hours, which I'm sure you've all seen pictures of, uh, from communal Italy are extremely rare. The only copy I have ever found, and I found it just recently, is in the Fisher Library at the University of Toronto. It is 14th century and belonged to a very rich female Italian penitent, sadly anonymous. In place of that, they used little pamphlets full of prayers, collects, litanies, and so forth, not a cut-down version of the divine office. The statutes of one Marian lay group described the liturgical devotions typical of monthly meetings in the confraternities of the late communal period. This group ritualized their corporate penance by adoption of monastic practice known as the chapter of faults. The group's leader, or governatore, began the session by recalling Jesus' command that all should be reconciled to their neighbors before offering sacrifice. Members then sought out those they had offended since the last meeting and asked forgiveness. This completed, the leader summoned to the altar anyone who had transgressed the rule so that he might impose penance on them. Transgressions, Uh, Punished included missing a meeting, neglect of the monthly sacramental confession, failure to recite morning and evening prayers, the pot heirs. Especially punished were visits to taverns and worldly amusements, such as jousting, dancing, horse racing, and so on. Each delinquent received some particular task alcuno incaricato, as a penance. Finally, the group knelt and collectively recited the Confidior, the admission of sin from the Mass. So prepared, the community began their devotions. They first recited the Ave Maria in Latin, doing so responsorially in the form of verses and responses, and using the short form of that prayer, ending at the fruit of thy womb, as was usual in the period. The principal liturgical exercise for those who could read came next: the little office of the Virgin, unusual as a lay devotion at this date. All then recited the Salve Regina, the Hail Holy Queen, which even the unlettered could have committed to memory. At the end of the little office, the prayers returned to the vernacular and to forms typical of other groups. The leader proposed prayer intentions in Italian for each of the group, for which each of the groups recited a Pater Nave. This bidding prayer, although similar to the liturgical forms of Good Friday, followed an order wholly independent of the clerical church version. The brothers prayed for the grace of penance and the needs of the members, the church hierarchy, the sick, the founder of the society, their civil officials, their relatives, the whole Christian faithful, the crops, the faithful in purgatory, the leaders of Christendom, and last of all, this being Italy, for peace." This bidding prayer ended with a air and a nave in responsorial form, and the usual Latin uh, collects. and qualche lauda spirituale, some vernacular hymn, can be added at the end of the meeting. Communes called on penitents to fill positions in city administration, though the brothers and sisters theoretically enjoyed exemption for public service. Very early, the penitents themselves accommodated communal needs. Parma statutes of the 1240s, among the earliest extant for any so show countless fratres brothers, in city functions. From 1 September to 29 September, the feast of St. Michael, the archangel, two penitents and a judge were annually sequestered to revise the city statutes. The city provided them with a cook and messengers. Another penitent, who was also a notary, registered and took pledges for back taxes, while yet another penitent kept the city seals, receiving five pounds imperial for the task. Penitents became known for keeping the city books and records in 1242. The dungarolus, in charge of the waterworks and drains, was always a lay penitent from the early 1240s. A commission of four brothers, chosen by the Podesta, that's the city manager, uh, And his council oversaw weights and measures in consultation with the minister of the Parma penitents. Their broad commission gave them oversight in sales of grain, flour, and wine. One brother ran the city office where people could bring bread to have it tested as to weight, quality, and color. And if it didn't match up, they could then get the ticket fining the baker. At this brother's direction, the commission could fine delinquent bakers up to 12 pounds Parma. Brothers also served in charitable tasks such as dispensing municipal alms. Finally, Parma relied on penitents for supervision of municipal elections until the 1260s. By 1288, Parma penitents held the monopoly for bread and wine sales during famines to ensure that no one would lack food on account of poverty. By mid-13th century, sexual segregation had become the norm among the penitents. At Padua, on fraternity statutes from the communal period, and later never mentioned women. This is exceptional since women penitents appear everywhere else, and by the late 1200s, probably far outnumbered the men. Perhaps the male confraternity's growing involvement with government dictated this. Perhaps it reflected increasing restrictions on women, or more likely, I think, it arose from the women's aversion to <clears throat> elaborate organization and their desire for greater autonomy. From the clergy. As the female penitent style was more independent and freelance than that of men, their absence from the statutes themselves means little. Women's desire for companionship and support encouraged formation of more informal communities, or one might better say, networks. Micro convents and anchor holes for individual recluses multiplied in many communes, uh, and this was the work of the women, through and through although their transience meant that they left few documents or records. Sibelina Biscossi became a conversa on her own. She felt drawn to the Dominican Church at Pavia, met some friars there, and became a penitent, wearing their colors under their direction. She never joined any penitent group. Emiliana de Cherqui lived a life of penances at home, as I have mentioned. Eventually, another conversa, Sobilia of Sasso, joined her as a companion. A priest from Michele guided her in spiritual matters. This was sufficient community for Humiliana. In conclusion, in origin, and development, the conversi were a lay creation, and until the late 1200s, they managed to avoid subordination to the clergy and direct clerical control. For their governments, they invented governance. They invented new forms of organization not based on clerical models. Only in their piety did they draw on monastic asceticism, and even this they adapted to their life in the world. They bequeath their genius for participatory, even democratic organization, to the communes themselves. And to this political development I will turn in the next lecture, but I believe now we had better stop for questions and comments. Thank you. Yes? Uh, I'm reminded a lot of the, of the medieval picture that Eamon Duffy paints in Stripping of the Altars where you have a very similar picture, but I don't think he focuses on specifically on the penitentiary. But more on uh, the he doesn't the deal with them because there aren't any in England. Okay. Yeah, the phenomenon I'm describing is Italian. Uh, and yes, uh, the kind of religious community he describes in places like Moorbath, which is his second book, and I think... Uh, Fascinating addition to Stripping of the Altars. Uh, Yes, uh, he did for England what I did for Italy later. And uh, in a conversation, there's been a similar book by Jones on uh, France under Louis IX, uh, debunking the idea that there's a separation between what we would call the secular realm being profane and not involved with religion, and then a religious realm, which for us moderns is usually privatized as opposed to the public sector. Uh, If I may follow up. Yeah. Uh, You you said the communes entrusted various offices to these uh, brothers and sisters. To uh, Uh, to the the men. To the men. Was that because it was presumed that they would be more honest? I think that's the reason. Uh, Nobody trusted anybody in Italy. They still don't. Yes? So, you mentioned... um, that it was common for these sort of confraternities to have monthly masses. Um, and they they go often attend a daily office. I'm curious whether you see on sort of a consistent level, I know later in sort of the post-trinity area of confraternities where monthly communion or monthly confession are kind of encouraged across the board. Is that something that you see earlier on in terms of sacramental uh, practice? Okay, there is a myth uh, that I've been working for 30 years or so to dispel which is that after the Lateran Council of 1215, uh, Catholics started to go to communion only once a year. Uh, That's false. That's really a post tridentine modern phenomenon. In the Middle Ages, the norm was what was normal since late antiquity, which was uh, the usual practical Christian went to communion four times a year, quarterly. Which by the way, if any of you know anything about Protestant churches, Uh, They adopted this practice from late medieval Catholics. That's why quarterly communion used to be the common form in Protestant churches. Uh, What they're doing here on the first Sunday is not a communion. On the other hand, uh, as I mentioned, many of the statutes include a requirement that they go to confession at least once a month. Now, this is interesting because uh, up until Pius uh, Pius X, uh, Catholic lay people were required like religious, Uh, were to go to confession before every sacramental communion. And your confessor determined how often you could go. So uh, a pious person who went to communion every day would have gotten permission every Saturday to do that. Uh, So four times a year would have been typical for communists. But going to confession, one of the things about the penitents is they're penitential. They go to confession more. They go once a month and can be fined if they don't. Yes? I have uh, two questions that they're related. One is uh, the ban on going to joust. Is that because they viewed joust as a tolerated sin among the non penitents, or is it because it was giving up? The clerics good have been railing against jousting forever. Okay. Uh, famously, William the Marshal. Does anyone know who yes. Okay, William the Marshal, as he was dying, uh, his confessor said, You have to restore all of a sudden armor you stole in jousts. Because basically it was considered illegal uh, for individual warfare. Uh-huh. And he said, You clerks run us too hard. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, jousting not only involves possible bloodshed, but also you're stealing the other guy's stuff. That's really why you're doing jousting. As well as practicing what you do in your serious job finding war. Okay. Um, and then the second question is for. Uh, bans on blasphemy, does that mean that there weren't general laws against blasphemy with non vengeance? Anybody can make a law. Okay. Cities had laws against blasphemy. Okay. Interestingly enough, not in the earliest statutes, as we'll okay. go about that in the next lecture. The statutes began to ro- regulate religious matters in a big way in the communal period after they get rid of the imperial German administration and the cities alone themselves. But that's the next time. Uh, and what was, was saying? uh Oh, uh, and of course, a society can create their own punishment for blasphemy in addition to whatever the cities are. Uh, I see no evidence that they turn people into the city, uh, police officials, for having blasphemy. And this was an uh, internal thing of uh, discipline within, uh, within such a uh, Yes. Yeah. Got two sets of questions. So the first is how, which city in Italy had the the most number of diversity, and how many? Like, what what was that number? We don't have matricula. Okay. We don't know. All all of them. uh, All the cities I have studied, which is everything in central and north Italy, except Venice, Genoa, and Rome. Among Italianists, if you do one of those, you don't do anything else. Uh, my area is communal Italy, I go to the south, which is a totally different world. Uh, all the cities, even small ones like Biela, uh, have evidence that there are conversi and uh, in them that are either being regulated, given alms, noticed, or employed. All of the statutes have something. The only place where we have actual matricula that we can try and use, and I'll do it in the next lecture, is in Bologna. And I think you're in this case the matricula are for not are for organs of city government. That the next lecture. And there we can do some pretty good guesses on percentage and how many people. A good question, by the way. Yeah. Um, you mentioned they took vows. The commercial mm-hmm. vows to, let's say, in modern terms, we call these private promises. Yeah, promises. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was no formal distinction between vows and promises, and all vows were perpetual. Uh, if you made them publicly, uh, they were then enforced by the church. If you made them privately before your priest or signing, having a note or a document, uh, they were not enforced by the church. That was a private matter. And it seems that nobody got punished if they decided to change their mind later for the private ones. Although if they made it with their pen, priest, priest confessor, he probably told them to do some kind of a penance for not living up to the promise. But the difference is private versus public. Uh, anyone know when temporary vows, the, the first institute? pious IX. 1890, 1859. Before that, we made solemn profession. Friars, religious nuns made perpetual solemn profession at the end of their mission. Right. We Dominicans tried to make them take it before the bishop, <laughs> <laughs> but the pope said no, 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 no. And the vows were primarily showed vows of poverty, chastity. But notice be? that the promises were being made, or promises to obey the constitutions, yeah. and. Uh, in the mm-hmm. constitutions, there's no formal obedience to the superior. That. Yeah. And they uh, they continue to hold property. So these are not religious vows. They're vows of the penitentiary, And they don't explicitly say <clears throat> Because In the 13th century, this has become so much art and pause. For example, uh, in antiquity and the Middle Ages, when you pass during Lent, you not only gave up meat and fish and Stuff, but you also gave up sex at least in theory. Yes. What's the relationship between these conversi and the like the, the later boom in confraternities connected with professions in the fourteen hundreds and 1500s? Uh, if you know what confraternities do, uh, they are a voluntary association. They don't make vows. And they're dedicated usually to some pious activity or devotion, like the holy name uh, or the rosary. Uh, they this is a, this is an ecclesiastically recognized state of life. Remember, it gives you status as an ecclesiastical person. Uh, this explains the incident in Francis's life when Francis actually this is very interesting. Most people think that he's giving up his father's money. We now know from studies in the archives in and in the CSE, uh, that in fact all the money came from his mother. And what he was doing was actually an action on dowry, and as an ecclesiastical person, and since it involved his mother's dowry, he says to his father who's gonna take him to court to sign the things, he says, no, I have to go to the bishop, I'm an ecclesiastical person. You don't think of France as a lawyer. But, so, but they go because it was a de- it was a dowry issue, what his father was afraid of. The business was running on the wife's money, and it remains her money. He only has what's called a wife interest, we call him user. Uh, that's all he had, that's all uh, Bernardo, Bernardo had. Pietro, he's Pietro the Bernardo. That's all Pietro had. And if his wife, if the wife died, Prodigal Francis would get half the, half the dowry because he's the heir of his mother, and he'd probably go lose it, spend it, throw it away, give it to, poor, give it to the poor, and the business would go under. Other example of this, uh, when Catherine of Siena became uh, a member of the Dominican uh, Penitents, they weren't yet called the Third Order, these women had to have enough money to live independently. Uh, the money in the family, uh, her father had died the business was in the hands of her brothers, and she and her mother went to court to sue her brothers to get the mother's dowry back, because the mother had a lot of money, uh, and, and that was the money they used to support themselves to become uh, Dominican penitents. Catherine couldn't have done it without a court action to get her, get her mother's money away from her brothers. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> No questions from all. Yes. Um, so obviously you're speaking specifically about Italy, but is this so? Is the this Italian movement of penitenti is this related to other movements um, throughout other parts of Europe that so rising up around the same time? Um, groups of like a free associations, like the Baghees, or uh, the Baghees are the name for the Germany. Okay. So where did the different names? come from, and is this... Uh, this is a great mystery. Yeah. We don't know what BB means. Right. We don't know what means. We don't know what means. Uh, it seems they're slang most of the time. Uh, it's a similar movement. Interestingly, the uh, beginnings are a low countries in Germany. Uh, this kind of movement, uh, I don't see much evidence of it in France. Who knows about St. in and so It's most developed in Germany and Italy. But uh, there's no connection between them, as far as we can tell. Other than they're part of the same kind of movement. Okay. And by the way, by the 14th century, they start to show up in England. At least some of the women do, uh, as they appear in Chaucer. Okay. So how if, how do they have, if they're all there? If each community is its own kind of independent organization, so yeah. not centralized, how do they all end up having very similar? i uh, the borrowing and imitating, and it sounds like a good idea, but on the local level, there's great variety. Uh, the things i have emphasize are the things they have in common. devotional uh, prayers, simplicity of life, uh, a monthly common mass and dinner, uh, candle offerings of some kind uh, at uh, the Shrine of the Patron, and, some, some, and, and fasting practices. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you could drop any of these and add other things. I remember, some of them would have no monthly thing because they're, they're freelance by themselves. You don't need other people to do it. Uh, a lot of the people I've studied have been these be sort of independent. Uh, the people I mentioned are mostly in these kind of independent holding women. Uh, they're clearly kind penetente, penetenti and uh converse, uh, but they're totally on their own and like Margaret and they make their own habit. They like Dominicans, they wear black and white. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so you had mentioned a number of these different women. Um uh Liliana or Flora Margarita uh, you'll hear about more them. Wonderful. Um I wanted to ask you had mentioned they like had this desire for this community and started to organize themselves obviously away from kind of a clerical influence. Uh the men started it. Uh there are women by the early twelve hundreds too and when this uh, in italy the thing they have in common is there's a kind of understanding that was going to follow the, the memoriality of the brothers and sisters of Pennsylvania in their own houses which is modeled on the older proposal 1215 um, but not in all so it, it's an inspiration more than anything else yeah were these communities um really just groups of women seeking community or were they uh, they I think they're, uh, they're essentially penitential devotional communities and uh, with the, uh, the groups where the community life aspect of it seems to come later. And I think it's often overemphasized the freelance nature of all this stuff. What happens with um, the men is, uh, we've got to get what's found in other places in Europe, the men seem to drop out of penitent groups by uh, the early 1200s as the clerics start to take them over and tell the women what, what to do to men. The men become flagellants, and the flagellant movement spreads throughout Europe. And the flagellants always manage to stay out of clerical control, which the original penitents brought up. You know, they hired priests say mass, but they could fire them and hire rule. They didn't want to serve us. time for- Okay, yes. You mentioned the use of neighborhood chapels. Does that suggest that these communities were usually... Geographically defined or uh, that is the topic of my next lecture. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not putting off that that really is. The answer, the short answer. Short answer is yes, they seem to, many seem to have been geographic, although not all. I'll say something about them. And it also depends on the city. Italy has enormous variety. Remember, there's no king telling you what to do. This is the land of our powerhouse. <laughs> Uh, you must have noticed my anti uh, princely jabs at the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> Let's thank father Augustine.